Hi, and welcome back to Voices. This is Episode 3 of Voices on the Voices Network. Our co-host is David Callahan again. Say hi, Dave. Hey, how you doing, Terry? It's good to be on the show again. <laughs> good to hear from you. Our guest is Sam. Can you introduce yourself real quick, just your name, and then I'm going to take it from there, and we're going to go ahead and get right into the show. We've got a good one to go with. Sure, yeah. Uh, my name's Sam Richards. I am, uh, I guess, the editor-in-chief of the North Star Post. And uh, you are the person who broke the story on the uh, the FBI sky, spy skies. We'll want to get into that in a minute. Um, last night, uh, the, 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 t- the title of this show is Occupy Deadline. Uh, a couple of years ago, Ben Swan, two-time Emmy Award winning, uh, TV host, uh, gave us all a, a real short course for citizen journalists, or he said he prefers the term independent journalist. <laughs> I prefer the term reporter because I even hate to say the word journalist in, <laughs> anymore. Uh, so we kind of had the basics covered on that one. And deadline, that's that's kind of the 202 level course. We'd kind of like to give a Get your side of that and tell us what you can teach us. And last night was a pretty good example. Uh, there was a tweet came out that said someone shot at Fourth Precinct shutdown. Get down here now. And uh, eight minutes later, you were there and shooting pictures. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you tell us about deadline pressure? <laughs> sure. <laughs> the way I think about it is uh, in like those kind of terms when there's breaking news, and it's literally just a matter of getting to the scene, uh, maintaining your professionalism in a chaotic situation, and working to network with people and get the facts out in a uh, as accurate way as possible. Uh, and then you have the other side of the deadline, which is, you know, maybe not as a pressing of a story, but something that you need done by a certain time. Uh, and that carries a whole other kind of uh, circumstances with it. But well, last night... Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, last night was just a perfect example of uh, the breaking news kind of side of that. Yes. Yeah, and I don't know whether you could see the tweets, but the uh, there was a lot of interference. You had you tweeted today that uh, it made you want to vomit all of the <laughs> all yeah. of the different. I believe I'm paraphrasing there. Sorry for the rewrite. Uh, Close enough. <laughs> but, but there were people calling for, hey, what's really going on? And can you give us kind of an idea of? Were you seeing any of the tweets that were going back and forth, just completely disinformation? Yeah, there's uh, even fake accounts trying to uh, sort of clone and imitate CNN and use their, you know, brand and credibility or whatever in order to spread disinformation. And that that is something that's been going on since this protest started last week um, with people, people tweeting out names of, officers, in quotes, involved with the shooting. Uh, the name Sam Hyde came up time and time again, and it was quickly determined that that was just, you know, trolling and disinformation. Uh, and I thought it was pretty lame because of the gravity of the situation. But not only that, but they were not even that well coordinated. I, I got tweeted two pictures of someone who was allegedly Sam Hyde, and it was two different guys. <laughs> So I was like, okay, this you guys just proved yourself wrong here, and you're not helping the situation. But I don't know why people do that, but they do, especially in uh, really difficult times like this. So when you uh, you were there within a couple of minutes of when the shooting had happened, how uh, what did you see, and what made you react as fast as you did? First off, you knew the person that had tweeted. Uh, that someone was shot, so you you had a pretty good idea that was on the level, right? Yeah, I'm I'm close with a lot of people there, uh, protesters, organizers, as well as independent media. So, um, yeah, it's it's my community, you know, the city and everything. And I actually, the first thing um, that alerted me to what happened was a, a text message from a group chat that we're using to coordinate things uh, for independent media purposes. And I saw that you know there was a shooting, and even in that first um, that first text message, excuse me, they said that it was most likely white supremacists. So they they were able to determine that because these people had been in and out all week harassing the protesters with masks on, bragging about bringing guns with them in videos that they posted online. 
And yeah, so I got there. I didn't. I didn't know I got there that quick. That's actually kind of cool to know that you timed it. But uh, within eight minutes, and then after after I drove a little bit too quick, probably, I got out of my car, uh, ran over to where it was obviously uh, going down, which was just a stone's throw away from the Ford precinct. And uh, they already had roped off the scene in the street there, uh, middle of the block. Uh, so there was people from their porches with their cell phones filming and, you know, yelling or talking to the police. There was a line of, I would say, probably 10 to 12 cops, um, two or three of which had pretty heavily, had been pretty heavily armed with, uh, you know, rifles and body armor and military helmets and that stuff. Um, and then on the other side with the protesters, there was uh, probably 20 to 30 when I got there. Um, including Nikini, uh, Nikina Levy Towns, who is the leader of the local NAACP, and other prominent, you know, figures in uh, that community. Um, she was really consistent getting people to calm down. Uh, and within a couple minutes of me and the other members of the mainstream and the independent press arriving, she had formed a circle to pray. And uh, I saw soon thereafter an activist was convulsing because of the gravity of the situation, um, and it was it was a bad scene. It was you could feel the tension before you even arrived, and it, this is following the police shooting someone and all kinds of institutional problems with that. Um, and so it was just like one bad thing on top of another. Hello? Oh, sorry. See, there's one of those things on um, technical difficulties. I had the cough <laughs> switch on. Uh, oh, no problem. <laughs> I, I do it often. Our listeners have gotten used to it. I really mess up a lot. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's with... just character on the show. It's no problem. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got lots of characters. <laughs> uh, we, uh, with, you, you were talking about you were working the facts uh, you were trying to get work the facts. Can you kind of try to explain how do you start sorting out what is the truth? How do you do that? I mean, you were there. Yeah, it's, it's not always easy, especially when things are breaking and uh, emotional and violent, I guess, things like that, news items. Um, so you, you go back to the, the extreme basics of, like, who, what, why, how many people involved, um, you open up lines of communication. I, I, I was really frustrated last night and today thinking about it. Um, I arrived in a, immediately after kind of just getting a feel for the scene and, you know, taking a picture to show people what was going on and sending that. Um, I was trying to get, you know, the Minneapolis police on the scene to tell me who the incident commander was, sort of like the guy in charge of all the cops that were in that area. Um, right. as well as, like, anybody who would be willing to talk. And, <laughs> excuse me, it wasn't just that there there wasn't an incident commander there. They were openly being um, obstructive. And it's I've faced that a bunch of times, but I was kind of shocked in that specific situation that they would choose to go down that route when it was clearly an extremely volatile situation and any information that could get out to the community would have been beneficial. So they wouldn't tell me who the incident commander was. They might not have even had one. But I did find out that they weren't collecting witness reports. Um, uh, I eventually found a very sympathetic Minneapolis Police Department guy who was intermingling with the protesters um, in a really calm way. He was helpful. He told me how many people had been injured uh, or shot where they were taken, um, and then a little bit about what they knew about the suspects. Uh, and I, I, I heard via my sources that these were the same people that had been coming into the protest camp harassing people uh, with racial intentions. And I heard that they were armed with uh, Kevlar as well as uh, a firearm, which is obvious. Uh, so I was just trying to get as much details from that MPD uh, officer as I could and then relay that to people that were listening on my Twitter feed as well as uh, media sources that were referring to me through, you know, other channels. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's difficult in those situations to get the facts exactly right. And I even uh, – the numbers changed throughout the next, like, 30 minutes of 
how many were involved, how many had been shot, and other facts. Uh, but as long as you keep updating people and telling them what you now know, most of the time people are reasonable and they understand that it's a developing situation. Hey, Sam, this is David. It's nice to meet you. Um, yeah, you too. I uh, have a couple of, of questions or comments. Um, it sounds to me like you are somewhat of a – you sound young. Uh, you know, some of us are a couple are older. Um, but, <laughs> um, some but some of like, us have trees that aren't as old as we are. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, it sounds like you're seasoned, and I, I use that term meaning – that this isn't your first uh, gig or whatever. And if you wouldn't mind, um, share a little bit of your uh, background. Are you are you trained in journalism or in reporting uh, from uh, from a you know academic standpoint? Um, and because I think it's important for our audience to understand just real quickly um, your background and whether what you're doing is unusual because of your uh, background experience, or if this is the kind of thing that, you know, Americans should be uh, seeking to pursue as part of the way that we keep our freedom uh, intact. Mm, and uh, I just think it's I think it's important for the audience to know that. And then secondly, uh, from from the point of view of of what you were doing uh, there on the scene, um, if you can give us a little bit more flavor of the uh, you know, I don't know if you probably even know who Walter Cronkite is, just how, how young you are. But, <laughs> of course, but, uh, I do. <laughs> but he used to always he used to always frame his uh, reporting uh, around the idea of this is what happened. You know what I'm saying? And you yep. did a lot of that already. But you know, can you give us a little bit of the picture of what things were, were like in a in you know as much as you can, as if you were describing it, so people can get that in their heads. Sure, that'd yeah. be helpful too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you asked that because a lot of the times uh, I, I think more about facts and numbers and things like that uh, mm -hmm. versus, you know, like in emotional or, you know, visual painting or whatever. But, yeah, that's, that's, I'm glad you asked that. Um, yeah, uh, my background, um, I'm actually not trained as a journalist. Um, I, I think I'm fairly well-read and somewhat intellectually interested in journalism, obviously. Uh, so I guess I'm self-taught. Um, but I've also had the benefit of learning from a lot of really great independent journalists around me. Uh, and that's something that I don't get to say enough, but I've really, you know, I've, I've picked up as much as I can and, uh, from people I consider close mentors. Uh, so originally, I never really thought of myself as a journalist when I was a, primarily an activist with Occupy. Um, but I got immediately involved with Occupy Minneapolis, or Minnesota. Uh, as a live streamer, uh, basically just, you know, documenting everything, trying to kind of keep, you know, the world looking at what was happening was the way I was thinking about it. Uh, I thought of it as like a critical lifeline of information to people that were genuinely interested around the world. Um, and so, yeah, I did that, and then I branched into social media uh, because of Occupy as well. And that, with 140 characters on Twitter, you have to put as much information accurately and succinctly as possible and spread that around. So sort of those things helped me kind of learn more about how to spread information accurately and everything. Um, and <laughs> so I, I wouldn't even consider myself a journalist until May of this year, um, which might sound kind of shocking to people. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's the honest truth. I put out a report about the FBI's or uh, aerial surveillance program and uh, what I had found through just a tip that my friend gave me. And that was the first piece of journalism that I uh, put my name on and I solely credit myself for. And just since then, I've been working really hard to, you know, hone in on, like, my skill set and learn from other people around me about how to do a good job and the ethics involved with journalism. Um, and, yeah, the, as far as the scene last night goes, it was it was kind of just a, a giant headache. Um, I, I pop out of the car. There's red and blue lights everywhere. There's people yelling louder than I've heard at a protest in a, a while, despite it only have being like 20 to 30 people at that exact time. Um, and it was just it was tumultuous, you know. It was like we are in the middle of this uh, this block in North Minneapolis. Uh, people looking out their windows with lights and 
I guess the the thing that's popping out to me right now the most is all the lights that were around. Because uh, it was like cell phone lights, flashlights, news camera uh, like lights in the background, uh, cop lights, uh, all sorts of stuff. But yeah, it was a uh, it's it's difficult to paint the scene, and that's why I like to uh, take video and picture. I guess sorry if that's kind of a weak answer, but <laughs> that's why I rely on those tools. How do you work no, through the the adrenaline rush when you're doing that to try to concentrate on what you have to do to do the job? It's uh, it's tough, and I, I know it might sound weird, and I'm like you guys said, I'm young, I'm twenty uh, twenty four. I had to think about that for a second. That's not good. But uh, <laughs> that's um, how it starts. Right. <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> no, but uh, even from just Occupy protests, um, I had a lot of encounters with the police. I was kind of uh, more rebellious then than I was now because obviously with the craft of journalism. Uh, you have to be, you know, at least somewhat professional and not just a rabble rouser. But I was, uh, I was, I had a lot of encounters with the police that uh, I, I now know. I, I used to not believe it at the time, but I now know I have some degree of maybe like I, w- I don't want to say PTSD because there's people that have really <laughs> bad PTSD and it, it's horrible. But I like my hands get shaky and. Even in just normal crowds nowadays, I have a little bit of, like, an increased heart rate. I can feel it in my, in my the jugulars in my neck. Um, but then you realize that you're there and you're doing something really important, and you kind of push that aside, and it's almost like you, you step out of yourself to, uh, I guess, accomplish an important role uh, for people that are looking at you to do a good job. David, you started to say something else, and I kind of broke in over the top of you could t- no that's right that's okay i was i was just I, i'm a little shocked at what you just said that you mean to tell me that journalists or reporters are generally not cool calm and collected all the way through the report they don't have the subjectivity that overwhelms the entire scene and gives them the ability to keep their emotions in check and everything i mean and and and, and i think the other thing is there isn't bias in their in their mind that might be influencing what they're actually reporting does that happen too or you know i think give give us a perspective on the subjective i think that's important for people to understand right and one of my friends uh on twitter ken cliffenstein he actually like he brought something up that just popped in my head when you asked that In in the scene obviously you're emotionally attached because you're there and i feel like you're kind of like the first point of contact so like a feed uh, to a larger organization generally, uh, unless you're just out there totally by yourself, which doesn't really happen all that often. But then you have the editors and the staff and everybody kind of take those emotional aspects out and whittle it down to factual reporting and non-emotional observations, I think. Um, and I, I've seen really good mainstream journalists, uh, like WCCO's Reg Chapman here locally. He's I think about that guy a lot. He actually got maced recently at the at the protest by the police. Um, but even during Occupy, he was – I could see him, like, reporting and doing his job and everything. But he was also saying things like, if the police would only let the protesters stay here for the night, there would be no problem. And it's like there's always going to be some, you know, inkling of humanity in even the most professional journalist. And I think that's important. Uh, I kind of I get upset when it's people just talking about objectivity all the time because journalism is human-to-human communication, and a lot of human existence is completely emotional, and that has a lot of value. Uh, so don't you think? Don't you think that it would be better for us in terms of our relationship to the uh, the uh, um, reporting community if they would just be actually honest about the fact that there is a bias in their reporting but that they're sure. that they're framing it in terms of the clarity that they understand they have a bias and trying to keep that in check wouldn't it be a better wouldn't we have a better environment of of uh learning about you know incidents in in our society if journalists would just be more honest in that respect i i think so and i I've kind of quibbled with this myself, like, should I write a piece about where exactly I'm coming from so people can see if my reporting is slanted in any way? Um, and, yeah, I, I would 
I would definitely agree. There's not only are there individual biases and you know lenses that you look through without even looking, but there's institutional ones that everyone's well aware of. You know, Fox News is now it's the most watched news network in the country, even though everybody knows that they have such a strong bias that sometimes it'll lead them to even lie, and just those facts will just be thrown out everywhere, and people will take them in as if they're true, even though they know that there's such a strong slant. Um, and yeah, you have to look at who owns what media institution, obviously you guys all know this, or who, who you know, even with local journalists here, that we, uh, with the North Star Post, we reported today that the, the union chief for the Minneapolis police is a well-documented racist uh, through multiple, or for many years, I should say, and through, you know, local media institutions not wanting to kind of mess up their access to city or other, you know, police um, individuals for interviews or whatever, they will just omit that information. And then this, is, this guy, Bob Kroll, then gets a pass in the media as a guy who should not have any credibility when it comes to racial, uh, race relations in the city. But they let him. They let him talk as if he's, you know, 100% solid. And that happens a lot when it comes to reporters talking about police or government officials altogether. Uh, and it's extremely frustrating. So that was kind of a long, winded answer, but I think objectivity is, uh, is somewhat nonsensical. I mean, you can use it as a tool, but it's just a tool. It's not like 100% from anyone. We're 21 minutes into the hour. Oh, wow. And going to have to kind of move on to the second segment here. If I could just interject uh, one thing, I think yeah, uh, it's important. Uh, well, I think that we're just really disappointed to hear that Fox News might not be as fair and balanced as they claim to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll see if I can find one of the statistics that says how often they're actually accurate. <laughs> I would love to see that, too. Oh, that was a showstopper. <laughs> uh, with you, uh, that really does bring a segue into that the Occupy movement kind of had to learn to tell their own story because of the blackout. Uh, we learned fairly early and fairly painfully that if we were waiting for the cavalry of the mainstream media to show up, we were going to be in for a wait. Uh, how many mainstream media did you see out there with you? How were they picking up their news? Uh, it was um, like an hour before people were saying they were seeing anything on uh, corporate media. Uh, anything. As far as last night with the Jamar Clark uh, protest shooting? Yes. Uh, well, actually, I thought the local mainstream media was pretty good. Uh, they, Reg Chapman, that guy again, he was there. Um, I talked to him a little bit as well as people, uh, other, you know, Cameramen and reporters, Star Tribune was there immediately uh, as well, not immediately, but shortly thereafter. Um, and they, they all were working diligently to, you know, get the facts straight as well. And we all kind of, one thing I'd like to say too about this is that with this protest in North Minneapolis, I've actually been impressed by the solidarity with media, at least on the behind the scenes. Uh, there's been some major mess-ups from, you know, KSTP and CARE 11 uh, and even the Star Tribune, but those came in later, and the people actually working on the story and the facts have been working fairly well together behind the scenes. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, maybe, that just, maybe that's just me being optimistic and naive, but I've been kind of impressed by it, so I will say that. We, we uh, you started, how, you were like a, uh, a week ahead of the corporate media when you broke the story about the FBI Air yep. Force. <laughs> uh, how did that happen, and what kind of deadline pressures were you balancing out on that one? Uh, well, uh, I guess the it's kind of funny. It's totally a non-traditional story from reporting all the way to dissemination, I guess. Uh, so I didn't have any deadline. I, I was literally just uh, posting pictures of what I found <laughs> on Twitter, and they were going viral. And somebody finally tweeted at me and said, hey, you should put this on a, a document so that we can all look at it, uh, see the whole story thus far, and then continue the research. So I was like, oh, that's, that's a great idea. And now I'm an independent journalist, basically. <laughs> um, and 
So I did that. I posted that on May 26th. And I was getting interviewed from a lot of different independent news organizations online, um, as well as uh, newspapers and stuff back home. And then a week later, the Associated Press put their story up, uh, <laughs> and they labeled it as an exclusive. And the strange, the strange part about that was, I had like, I had friends that were saying, "Hey, AP editor." you should uh, include a reference according to your guidelines that this was available before uh, <laughs> before today. And eventually, uh, in uh, not eventually, but even in the original wire reports from that, because, you know, the AP sells their stories to a bunch of different places. Um, so, like, a couple of different places had the first top three graphs or paragraphs talking about the, you know, the, the gist of the story. And then they had a sentence after that that said, all of this information was available online, and it linked to my blog post. And it was just kind of perplexing to see, like, exclusive and also <laughs> not exclusive in the same story. So I've, I've never been able to kind of reconcile that in my head other than the fact that they were probably working on it for a lot longer than I was and spent money and everything on it, and then I just you know, was eating Cheerios one day and found all this out and did it on my own. Well, you know, so. you're really raising a point that's a social, a social political problem of our day, and that is that uh, we have a, um, a tendency in uh, our country today to to kind of avoid the point of integrity in mm-hmm. what we do. And this is this is a problem. You know, it's a, it's a spiritual problem. It's an ethical problem. It's a moral problem that if we're going to get back on the right track, I think you'll agree, we're going to have to get this kind of stuff figured out. And yeah. it's only going to be by people like you who raise that standard, uh, you know, as you uncover something that no one else do- did. And, and by the way, I think it also points to the fact that it's your generation, uh, the millennial generation, that's going to have to wrap your minds around this and fix this issue. You know, oh, it's the part definitely. that you're going to play. Your 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 generation, don't you agree, is going to have to play in uh, completely helping helping us to fix this kind of stuff. Yeah, one one thing that I've always kind of thought, or not always, but in the last few years, I've thought is like with all these global and national problems, you know, from climate change to war to what we've been talking about, uh, and especially with integrity, like you brought up. There's so many giant and potentially catastrophic problems, but if you look at the incredible advancements that we could all benefit from if we just get over this this precipice, um, then it's going to be an amazing world, and I think humanity would be in a great spot. And I also think that my generation um, has the ability to be perhaps the greatest generation if we get over this nonsense media, the pop culture, Snapchat frenzy, and self-absorbed kind of crap that's dragging a lot of people down and distracting people. So it's, it's just it's very strange times to see, like, a, a chance to be incredible as a society and a global society, but also, you know, self-absorbed and marveling at our own technology and distracted from that goal. But, yeah, I, I think integrity is at the core of that if we were all just more honest and fair and we had more principles behind what we were doing we would be in a lot better place sounds to me like if uh your generation and everybody else would just have a change of thinking about the way we are uh we might actually turn out to be a pretty good society again (laughs) yeah i think so and in a very scientific and thoughtful society you know with the internet uh expanding and we're, we're literally 3D printing organs now, and <laughs> solar panels are becoming more uh, affordable, and all this amazing space technology and everything else, it's, uh, it's, it's wonderful to watch, and it's something that I think we need to embrace and, you know, work together towards, because a lot of people are waking up to, you know, our, our foreign policy is something I always point to. People are so skeptical of anything that, like, the State Department says or the White House says in relations to why we're in a war or why we're bombing this country or this and that and this and that. And, you know, we're going to have to realize that we're well aware of these problems. We just need a way to stop them from happening. We're 30 minutes into the hour now. 
what was the FBI's little private Air Force? Uh, what are the implications? What do people need to know about when the ghetto bird, which is what it was called in Baltimore, uh, when the ghetto bird comes over, what could be happening? Uh, can you give us some background there? Yeah, definitely. Um, basically, what the FBI said versus what is probably a reality is obviously different, as it is with everything. But these uh, these aircrafts, they're typically Cessnas, like small single-engine planes, really common if you look in the skies. More than likely, the plane you're going to see is a Cessna. Um, but they also have helicopters and some larger aircraft, um, like ones with you know seats for like dozens of people potentially. Uh, so it's it's these little planes, uh, and at the bottom of them, they're equipped with like what looks like a just a general kind of security camera, you know, that black orb. Uh, but that technology is actually originally military technology that was used to surveil entire towns and cities in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so the, the the visual side of things is called persistent aerial surveillance, and that's they film that entire area with a technology that's basically just a bunch of cell phone cameras, um, but it, it compiles into an image that can track every moving thing within like 36 square miles. Uh, so you have that optical power, which is immense. If you think about how big 36 square miles is, and to be able to watch every single thing moving in that area, uh, but they're also probably, or they're, they're also equipped with infrared, um, you know, night vision, and cell phone surveillance technology. So the, the FBI originally said that in some cases it's equipped with like a, a stingray or an IMSI catcher. Um, and I've, this whole time I've been reporting on it, I've always said that, you know, these planes, they, they're more than likely almost all equipped with a stingray. I don't have an exact number because, you know, <laughs> stingrays are so secretive that they'd rather throw cases out of court than reveal details about that tech. Um, but Wired recently did a great investigative piece in association with the ACLU uh, in which they found a bunch of capabilities to the Stingray, which we didn't know before, but were long suspected and feared, uh, such as, you know, uh, well, real, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, the real basic thing about a Stingray is that it'll imitate a cell phone tower and trick all the cell phones in an area to connect to it to get data, uh, mostly metadata, but also content, now we know, um, and then with Wired, we also learned that they're able to use Stingray to uh, literally activate cell phones to turn them into active listening devices, even if the cell phone is turned off. Um, and I don't know exactly if they're only able to pinpoint one phone and do that, or if it's all of them or what, but just thinking about all that data, they don't have a judicial review process. They don't, they don't even, we don't know how long they're keeping data in the databases from people that are totally unassociated with any crime they're investigating. Uh, they even originally said, the AP said that they're probably using data that they scoop up for unrelated things, saving it, and then prosecuting people later on. So the FBI's argument was that we're using these planes for national security or related stuff like that. And it's, in, it's an active, specific investigation. And with that, they, they're basically saying, like, trying to make it look like it's a honed-in, precise, you know, detective work. But then again, they're also saying that this information is being retained and lots and lots of people could be affected anytime one of these aircraft is airborne. And, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty Orwellian. That's the only way I can think to describe it. We literally have the federal government spying on us with spy planes. Um, and, and one last Thing to end this rant on this topic is that <laughs> the, uh, the director of the FBI, he was in front of the, uh, I believe it was the ethics committee in front of Congress, and someone asked him if these aircraft, or Stingray in general, if the FBI uses warrants. Um, in, when they, and he literally said, I don't believe we need to. <laughs> and this came a month after the Department of Justice released rules that said they need to have probable cause in order to field a stingray. And the, the best part about that was that that story <laughs> and the, the quote from him in front of Congress saying he doesn't believe they need warrants was reported by the same Associated Press reporter. <laughs> and they didn't say anything. 
they just let it go. And that's exactly the problem we were talking about before. Like, how do you let him get us to get away with that in front of Congress? <laughs> that should have been a huge story for that guy, but it wasn't for whatever reason. And we'll, I will I will never find out because the Associated Press doesn't talk to me. <laughs> oh, yet. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds uh, like in terms of what you're suggesting that we need to really uh, understand that these are very serious issues that you're you're reporting on, mm-hmm. and and it goes back to the very precious principle of the First Amendment of the right of a free press, mm-hmm. in order that we the people can know what's going on, so that we can make our government accountable to the people. And the thing that we need to figure out from there is ultimately how we can. Uh, find remedy in terms of making them accountable. But without Mm -hmm. having the right information, it becomes very, very difficult. So uh, I commend you on what you're attempting to do and uh, your your, uh, courage and your sense of, uh, you know, um, uh, desiring to do the right thing and to let people know what's going on. Um, It sounds like you've got some very uh, uh, impressive... attitudes about what you're trying to do and and we we need to learn from that even from a young man such as yourself thank you that that's uh, that's really nice to hear actually and uh, and it comes out of a frustration of seeing people that have access and great resources um in journalism and elsewhere not pulling their weight um it's it's frustrating but we got a good team behind us and we have good folks like you two uh putting out information in all sorts of different ways and I think people are waking up to the fact that there's a lot of good independent, you know, ethical stuff going on that they can latch onto besides corporate media. And I think in the next decade or so, we're going to see a huge push, uh, you know, against that kind of bad stuff and for, you know, good, uh, good solutions and everything else. I hope it's sooner than a decade from now. I hope it's like next week. <laughs> right. I, I wish. I wish. I'm not going to hold my breath, but I, I can see it slowly, slowly coming. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting in the feed last night with with all of the disinformation that was being spread. You could see people actively looking for who do I listen to to try to get something out of this, and mm-hmm. your name was coming up over and over and over because <laughs> some people were being able to pass along. You are a reporter. You do report. Report is a verb. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, You and you you've got a pretty good reputation. Do you see? Do you see that as being a trend coming back? I mean, if AP doesn't start having people that that people can trust, um, where do you see the future going? And it's your future. You are the millennial. uh, I assume. Uh, how do you see us getting through this? How do we bring back those professional ethics? Uh, I, oh, go ahead. I, I, I just, you're doing, part of it is the technology change. Right. Uh, and and, and a, a part of the FBI Sky's story was you have the access to flight tracker or a piece of technology that didn't even exist probably 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a combination of the technology plus where do you see it going? I, I think you got it. Um, you know, the, like the great decentralization of uh, mass communication resources, um, we've already seen a great benefit from that just in the recent years. You know, you can download an app to broadcast live video to millions of people potentially. Um, you have social media where, you know, the right information somehow almost magically always seems to crop up to the top. Um, you know, it might just be because it was seen by the right person or after a while <laughs> it just kind of percolates to the top. But I think uh, I think technology is a huge factor in that. But I also think people's, you know, kind of self-education, um, not even just the Internet, but just watching events unfold in the news around them is, it's actually doing a lot of good. Um, you you see, like, CNN will, uh, their reporter at the Trump rally said, black protester beat up, kicked, etc. And then it went to the editors, and the editors said, protesters thrown out after altercation at Trump rally. And people, that's not missed. People see that process happening. And so they're like, well, if this is the major media, 
I guess we're just going to go somewhere else, and we're going to have our own uh, organizations. We're going to find people that we know and trust in our community. And I think if that process is allowed to continue, which I hope to God it is, I think years from now we're going to look back and see that this is the era in which the people started reclaiming the, the power of the press, um, and along with a lot of other things, but that's what we're focused on. Did Terry mute himself again? Uh, yes, Terry one. did. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like we're, we're at another one of those points in history. I think they'll look back and this will be a golden age of reporting come out of yes. this. Uh, and worldwide. I, I so. You had people all over the world were looking, specifically looking and looking for your report just because <laughs> it was something they felt they could make some sense out of a very chaotic situation last night. Definitely. Um, we were and at... Uh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say that's something, too, that, like, and I, I don't mean to in any way disparage all of media or be an absolutist in any regard. Um, and there, was, there were reporters with, like, NBC, um, BuzzFeed, Think Progress, all, all, all across the board that were saying, like, good job being on the ground, like, thanks for doing this. And that sort of balanced out the whole trolling that was happening. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the people around the world, they know, they're beginning to know how to find it. And there are a lot of good people in establishment media, um, not just independent media, but establishment media that are trying their best. And with, I think with of that collective kind of, I guess, heart, something has to come out of it that's good. And I, I think you're right. It, it will be shown as a golden age. Well, maybe we're talking to one of the new Cronkites. Uh, hey, guys, there's one thing that I think we kind of maybe missed. I don't know if we did or not. Maybe I missed it in terms of listening. And that is, what is the context of what happened last night? What, I mean, for those that may not know what happened in Minneapolis or is going on in Minneapolis, uh, have we really framed the context? Of I guess that why, was kind of missed. Uh, yeah, I think it's important because I'm, you know, sometimes caught in that bubble where you just don't know what's going on because of all the busyness of life. Um, can you, real quickly, as a reporter, can you give us that, Sam, what uh, the context of last night's event was? Yeah, definitely. Um, so November 13th, uh, I believe it was the 13th. That, that's a really bad way to start this off. But last week, uh, last Sunday, Jamar Clark was shot by Minneapolis police. Um, allegedly, we don't know the facts because the, the government hasn't released the video. Um, they're currently framing the debate right now and giving him a trial by media, which I think is wrong. But what happened was there was a 911 call uh, involving allegedly a domestic disturbance or like a, a kind of abuse case. And the police showed up because Jamar Clark was allegedly interfering with paramedics that were trying to aid a woman that was injured. And witnesses were there, a lot of people with cell phone cameras that were later seized, captured it. Uh, and the, the dispute right now is between the authorities and the protesters. Uh, the protesters are saying Jamar Clark was handcuffed when he was shot. Um, and the cops, including Bob Kroll, who we know is a racist, he is already framing it that Jamar was grabbing for one of the officer's weapons, and then they had to react and shoot him. Uh, no mention of, you know, an effort to tase him or detain him in a non-lethal way, but the officers shot him in the head, and he was brought to the hospital, put on life support, and shortly thereafter he was pronounced brain dead. And <clears throat> so the video that captured this from a bunch of different angles uh, has all been taken by the state-level Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. And they are the ones that I'm looking for in terms of the serious investigation. Uh, the Department of Justice also has opened a case, and they're actively investigating it, um, as well as the Minneapolis police. And my immediate suspicion with that was that they were just trying to clamp down on data requests, which I actually submitted a data request before they announced an internal investigation, and I was denied. Um, so it's kind of clear to see that there's obstruction from city level, uh, state 
is working on it, but they've been less than helpful. And uh, the federal government's also looking into it at this point. And so protesters have been camped out since that night. Um, the, originally, there was a, a number of protesters that were actually occupying an entrance to the, uh, the 4th Precinct Police Building, and they were quickly removed uh, after the mayor of our city, Betsy Hodges, asked for a meeting with the protest leaders. Um, they obviously responded because they were looking to her for leadership, but at that meeting, at the same time that the, the quote, leaders of the protest were talking with her, the police raided the camp and took the people out of the building, and uh, yeah, so there's a lot, a lot of nuance to the story, but that's the, the very gist of it. How do people, like David just said, how do people make a judgment? Do you have any suggestions to them as to how to be a good consumer of good reporting? You know, what I do think, you look for? I think it, it's sort of something that you learn, but you learn quick. Um, I like to I like to read people that I disagree with um, because I think living in a democracy you have to. Uh, but I think looking at you know a number of different reports, sort of filtering everything and cross cross examining I guess it would be a good way to look at it. You know maybe something happened on the national stage so you want to read CNN's take on it or whatever and then compare that to other outlets and you you have a great access to people that are living these events through Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. Uh, so I think just <laughs> literally it just takes some effort to get at information, and you'll find it. The The truth, you know, uh, it's, it's definitely something you can discover if you try. <laughs> We're at uh, 46 minutes and 51 seconds, <laughs> uh, and we really – wanted to kind of touch on, too, back to the original, this is occupied deadline. The term deadline is a journalism term uh, from, from before it was called journalism. It used to be the press. Uh, used to be newspapers. And if the story wasn't done by the time you went to press, that story was dead. Because <laughs> by the time you went to press the next time, things would have changed, and that's why it's called news. Um, so there's basically... How do people who are now becoming more and more reporting, citizen reporters, um, how do they try to begin to think about, like we started the show out with, where's the trade-off between speed and accuracy? Do you have any any tips you can pass on to the people that are learning how to do this? I, oof, I think that um, there's, at this point, a big difference between, I guess, breaking the news and analyzing it. Um, I, I like to wear both hats. Um, if there's something happening, I'll go there and try and document it, basically, as like kind of to get a timeline um, and then use that information with people that were there or people you know involved to try and build off of that. So there's the breaking news. And then there's what I would call analysis, like, an event happens, let's say, in Syria, and obviously we can't be there immediately, but we can look at primary sources and stuff and kind of try and get at what's the big picture, so to speak. Um, and, yeah, I, I kind of lost my train of thought. I'm, <laughs> it's been a long week, but I, I guess <laughs> you, you need to really just document everything possible and cross-reference everything with what you have as far as instincts and, you know, the facts that you can easily get to. Or, or I, I mean, just get to in general, not even easily. Sometimes it's tough, but you need to do the, the grunt work. Uh, reporting is a lot of grunt work, like making phone calls, uh, sending emails, um, you know, just basically making flow charts to try and see how things happen or why they happen. Um, but, yeah, it's, that's another thing. It's like you just kind of have to do it. <laughs> When, uh, Ma'am, there's a question, if, I, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask, um, and it has to do with what you just said. It's a follow-up. Um, we talked earlier about the bias of reporters. Mm -hmm. What's the what's your self-admitted bias? What What is it that, you know, <laughs> uh, putting you on the spot a little bit, but, you know, I think it's important, even in the framework of our discussion here, that, you know, you'd be willing to share at least some perspectives of 
you know, what's motivating you? Why, why are you so sure. concerned to make sure that, you know, the truth, as you see truth, is uh, presented uh, as a reporter, even though you weren't trained in journalism, uh, there's a reason why you're doing what you're doing. Right. Um, it's, uh, well, one of the mantras of the North Star Post is uh, civil liberties and social justice. Um, and I, I think that's something that can apply to, it should apply to most Americans. You Obviously, you can, uh, you can appreciate the Constitution from being on the left or the right or whatever. But my personal background, um, I was a really idealistic kid. Um, I firmly believed in, I, I still do, in the goodness of our country. Um, I believed in the political process, and I always thought that people that dissented against it were either not, they didn't know enough about it, or they were just reactionary and kind of just disgruntled, I guess. Uh, so I, going in high school, I actually put in a lot, like over a thousand hours into campaigning for Obama in uh, the 2008 election. And I, not only because I believe that it was an extremely important civil rights victory um, for people of color and just for the country, uh, but I believed in what he was saying. And I genuinely felt that after the Bush administration <laughs> trashed the world and the Constitution um, and our reputation and mishandled everything, that this guy was going to come and fix our problems. And now the way I look at it is I was swindled by a really clever marketing campaign. Uh, sure, Obama's administration has been facing extreme obstructionism from the right, but I honestly don't know if he either is capable of or genuinely interested in doing the things he talked about. I mean, there's been small victories here and there, but by and large, he's further right than Bush. And... That was a huge letdown for me and led me to become involved with Occupy, um, where the main, one of the main tenets besides Wall Street corruption is that both parties, the only two options we're faced with when it comes to voting, for the most part, are the same, and with minor exceptions, but they're by and large the same, and it's a, it's a, a theatrical exercise more than anything. And so... I, I, would, I guess my, my slant is that I do not believe that the federal government should um, have unlimited powers of surveillance. I think um, the prison industry is insane that we call ourselves the most free country in the world when we have the biggest prison population. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's so much corruption, and people know about it, but we all feel very powerless. Um, if, yeah, except for when you hear of, you know, great protests or something like that where people are, you know, actually speaking truth to power. But to not get too into the weeds, I guess that's mostly my slant. You know, I, I talked about how I believe that science is going to be a thing to save us um, and people coming together, uh, putting aside petty differences to get at a larger truth. Um, and, yeah, I, I, wish, I wish we had a more or an actually representative democracy and yeah, uh, I guess that's that's primarily my plan. We don't and know I, where I, the I deadline. Should, I should oh, say uh, rule of law too. Rule of law is huge. We we need to follow the Constitution. We can't continue shredding it and then yelling at countries around the world for not abiding by the rule of law. Um, but yeah, that that's that's all. We don't know where the deadline to be able to make these changes. Uh, when do we have enough time left to be able to do it? Is it? Does it get to a point where it can't be done? Obviously, we don't feel we're at that point yet, or we wouldn't be taking the chance of doing this broadcast. Um, I, what happens when we make a mistake? That's I, I, that's part of deadline too. When 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 we when we make a mistake, and if you do enough reports, eventually, unless you're a perfect human, <laughs> you're not going to be a perfect reporter. And you're going to make mistakes. So how do you handle it? How do you deal with retractions? That's, uh, that, that's something that I'm kind of nervous about at the moment. Um, part of my reporting last night was what the shooters allegedly yelled um, before they started opening fire. Uh, and one of those things was uh, Trump 2016. And I heard that from many witnesses. And I'm, I'm actually working on tonight on like getting that 100% um, for a couple different news organizations. But 
you know, with the off chance that that is wrong, I'm obviously going to say, hey, look, um, I, I made an honest mistake. I heard something from people on the ground. It was a tense situation, and I'm sorry that I put out wrong information. And yeah, I think that's just the, the only way to approach it is to admit to your mistakes and try and move on and explain to people why it happened. And you weren't, unless you're trying to actively be deceptive, obviously, but I don't think a lot of reporters do that. Um, what, I don't know why, but one thing that pops into my head, because I'm a huge fan of history, is uh, the Bay of Pigs. It's not really related to journalism, but it was a, it was a blunder, and JFK owned up to it uh, almost immediately and took credit for the bad mistake. And uh, it turned out that it wasn't such a huge backlash because he admitted that he was wrong and he apologized for it. And, uh, you know, that, that speaks to me. Um, as someone who looks at, you know, politics and journalism, it's just owning up to a mistake. And obviously, like you said, no one's perfect, so they they do happen. And isn't I'm, that I'm, a measure? Isn't that a measure of credibility? Oh, completely. <laughs> if, yeah, that's the only thing a journalist really has is uh, you know credibility in the end, especially an organization. So if you, I think. If people keep seeing you mess up and you don't take credit or you don't you don't correct it, then they they catch on to that, and that's why people. I don't know how you guys feel about like Alex Jones or Infowars, but I really don't see that organization as being credible, pretty much whatsoever, because they put out so much stuff and so much content, and they don't really work towards saying you know this was correct. We're sorry, this one wasn't correct. They're more mm-hmm. just like dumping information onto people's brains, and I I, I kind of find that completely useless. It's like some of that information might as well be coming from the Kremlin, for all we know. <laughs> right now, I've seen a lot of people tweeting that they trust the information coming out of the Kremlin more than yeah. they trust the information coming out of the mainstream media. We've got three minutes left. What is your final thought? What do? What's the final takeaway from here? Well, it was good to talk to you guys. Um, I really appreciate the time to come on and kind of, you know, it almost felt like I was getting some things off my chest because I really haven't had an emotional release from this week. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my, I guess my main takeaway for the conversation would be for people to put in the effort to find the truth and find their source of information. You know, don't don't pigeonhole yourself by only listening to sources of information that you agree with, but actually put in the effort to be a part of a mass democracy that has amazing communication tools. Um, I I think people need to follow more independent press um, and realize that those places don't necessarily have all the resources, but what they lack in resources, they make up for tenfold in passion and uh, ethics. So (laughs) that's kind of all over the place, but I guess that's where I'm at. That's some sage wisdom from a young man, don't you think, Terry? <laughs> uh, yeah, kind of. Since he's going to have to pay for our retirement, it's nice to know we may make it out of here a little longer, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got your guys uh, back. <laughs> we need all the help we can get. Uh, <laughs> Same here. Same here. We've got, a, we've got a one minute and a half left, and one of the things that's the hardest for the people who have been on the front lines doing what you're doing, like you did last night. Uh, how do you work through the PTSD? How do you work through, how do you get up and do this again tomorrow and the day after that? Oof, I'll, uh, I'll let you know when I've had more years under my belt doing this, but <laughs> I, think, uh, I think just realizing the importance of the matter at hand, that's, that's all I can say. And what I've been thinking in the back of my head, especially when I've been investigating uh, for Jamar Clark, is that the information, it'll provide solace to at least one person. And in the end, that makes it worth it. And if it, if it helps an entire community or an entire nation, that's an added bonus. So, Well, this is Occupy Deadline, and unfortunately, we've hit our deadline. We've got uh, <laughs> 30 seconds left. I want to thank you for being on, Sam. There will be links up for how to get to your site, North Star. Uh, we'll have links up to your Twitter feed. And uh, any other, anything that we really ought to share with people, we'll try to get links up. 
so they can make their own decisions. They don't have to trust our word for it. Let's give them some information to see how they can make their own decision. David? Well put. <laughs> thanks again. No, I just, no, thank you, Terry. This was a great interview, and I think it will be valuable to a lot of people. Cool. Thanks, guys. It was a good, to- uh, good talk. Okay, we're looking forward to the story. We'll talk to you later. Uh, okay. For now, uh, this is Voices, and thanks for being with us. Bye-bye. Good night.